Welcome to the Blooming League of Original Podcast. G'day and welcome to a royally special edition of Thrash and Treasure, the torture chamber musical comedy podcast that will call a spade a spade, then we'll use it to shatter each other's spirits. And speaking of spirits, I'll have a whiskey and you can charge it to this guy because he's gotten rid of all sugar, carbs and fun. It's my co-host, Evan, the Baker Man. How are you doing? Hey, how you going? Yeah, good, thanks. You almost didn't make it. Yeah, I, I had about 10 minutes to spare. Well done. I spent all night watching the clock. And, and figuring out how much time I have left when, <laughs> when I need to leave. And yeah, it was, it was a close call because you said 7am and I went, oh, I can't do that. I, there's no way yeah. I can do 7am. <laughs> yeah, that's all right. We're here now because guess what? What? We have another legendary diva in the studio today and bless my soul, I even shaved for a change. This next guest began his fairy tale career when he caught the lyrical bug as a Harvard Law student. Hear that, Evan? whilst moonlighting as a songwriter for singer Pamela Stanley when his raw talent was thrown out of the frying pan and into the fires of the late and legendary Barbara Cook with her acclaimed 1980 concert at Carnegie Hall. And from there, this scintillating scribe saw himself selected by Cy Coleman to pen the Tony and Olivier award-winning favourite, City of Angels, which also saw him score the Heavenly Tony for Best Original Score, not long after he said hello and a quick goodbye to Broadway with the Goodbye Girl opened up Veronica's closet, then spread his wings with the cult animated film The Swan Princess, which led this artist to go the Disney with two 90s Disney classics, The Reflective Mulan, but not before Honkillies. Oh my god, try not to cry, Aaron. So by this two-time Oscar-nominated stage, nothing can break his stride with a list of award wins and lyrical credits as tall as Mount Olympus, but as this legend is also a lawyer, I'd be a bad Cinderella to not give the warmest, most Aussiest g'day to the woman in white and the woman in sparkly black, by which I mean Liza at the palace, fitting given that Sir Andrew Lloyd Webber chose to invite this prince to the Royal Belleville Ball for today's chosen musical, with all 138 gazillion album sales in tow. So please welcome to the torture chamber, the star-spangled man with a pen and paper, it's Mr. David Zippel. Welcome to the torture chamber. How are you going? No wonder all of your guests blush. What a what an introduction. <laughs> yeah, oh, thank you. I um, Each time it's like, Oh crap, how do I outdo myself this time? And um, but no, thank you so much. After that, I do need to lie down. Uh, but no, you've had so much in your career, goodness gracious me. And and a lot of this is is my childhood. Thank you so much for for coming on the show. I am even wearing uh, my Disneyland shirt, which has Hades on it. So there we go. I'm, I'm representing Hercules today. But for the metalheads out there, uh, they would know Captain America. Uh, and, and you wrote the um, Star Spangled Man with the Plan, which is the iconic uh, song from the first film. With Mr. Menken, with Alan Menken. With uh, yeah, the legendary Alan Menken. Goodness gracious me, another man who's represented on this shirt numerous times. Now, have you experienced these fan reactions at conventions and sort of when that song plays during um, anywhere that there is enough nerds. Have you been in that environment yet? I've never been in one of those conventions, but it sounds like something worth attending. Yes. Now, I think it's if you've ever gotten goosebumps from a Broadway audience, I think this would be twice as much because 
nerds are not as polite let's just say that as um broadway audiences have been and we're west end audiences obviously um, now did they approach you for the uh recent what if series to do sort of a female version with peggy uh, maybe union jackie with a plan no uh, not yet oh. I, I, there's always hope though damn it disney why not because after the success of uh, agatha all along you'd think they'd be you know Let's get some more. Amen. But anyways, we'll, we'll move on from vibranium to metal. Un- unless, Evan, you have any, because you're a, an uber nerd. Sorry, that was good. That was good. That was a nice one. Moving from vibranium to metal. Yes, very well done. Thank you. I don't know about <laughs> that, that's a 3 a.m. pun, that one. Yes. Uh, did you have any questions on Captain America, like that involvement there? Because obviously I know you've... Yeah, well, I mean, I had I had, I had, had no idea, and, and it makes sense that Marvel would, would, you know, come to the experts to when they need a a star spangled song written yeah um, yeah it's, it's it's amazing how much stuff you've you've been involved in that you know i had no idea you know you you know it you've seen it but you know it's like you know who, who's this guy who are you talking about you know you start you start doing the research you go oh my god you you did that wow yeah yeah, yeah. i told you like this is mind-blowing like how legendary our guest is yeah. now this is, this is kind of the whole point i i really don't know much of the musical world at all welcome to thrush and treasure now we'll obviously <laughs> as i said we'll move on to metal and uh, now you were the musical director for the late great barbara cook were you guys ever listening to metal in the green room head banging around well i, I was i was not the musical director uh my collaborator oh, harper was the musical director i wrote lyrics for her. pardon me that's wikipedia again you have got me again sorry yeah <laughs> Someone I I'll get someone I know to correct that, or you can do it. I'm not allowed to. Sorry, my 11 year old has has fixed too many things that they have sent us warnings to say we're not allowed to send any. Uh, we're not allowed to fix anything else, or we'll get banned from Wikipedia. And I don't think I'm allowed to fix anything. So um, <laughs> no, you can't fix yourself. We'll leave it to the to the good wishes of the fan community to see if they can fix it. Yes. But no, I, I was not her musical director. Okay, yep, sorry. It's okay, the late, great Wally Harper was that person, and I, I wrote lyrics for her. But I did spend a lot of time with her uh, on and off stage, and uh, I don't think she was listening to a lot of heavy metal. No? Oh, well, that's a shame. What about yourself? Any experience? I, I tended to like kind of soft rock, uh, sort of yep. chewy, crunchy rock, less hard, but... Yep. Uh, to that end, uh, and ironically, and, and, and this was initially what I told you, I wrote to you when I told you I, I was willing to be on the show, but that I uh, this was not my area. This week, I have a song that's number one on the hard rock digital uh, billboard chart. So go figure. Clayton Parrish, yeah. From um, Mulan. Um, right. So I, I, this is my scatterbrain, David, that there, if there was two songs that have a similar name, I'm going to make a portmanteau out of it. And having the songwriter in front of me, I'm going to screw this up. And I'm going to want to say, I can make you a man, which is from Rocky. But we're looking for, I can make a man out of you. Or am I mixing that up with something else? (laughs) Close enough. I'll make a man out of you. Actually, I I can tell you a Barbara Cook story that's show a song for her, for a Carnegie Hall concert called It's Better With a Band. Mm -hmm. And signing autographs in Canada somewhere and uh, for an album release event. 
and there were she was crowded. There were a lot of people around her, and as the crowd dissipated, she found herself next to a poster that said Barbara Cook signing autographs of her latest album. It's better with a man. <laughs> <laughs> Unfortunately, I wouldn't know because thank you very much, COVID, for ruining my <laughs> love life. Anyway, so that that's um, fantastic. That's why we have you know you guys on the show to bring out these fantastic stories that we're not going to find on Wikipedia because it's all bloody wrong, as I keep finding out, unfortunately. Now, uh, Evan, you chose the metal album this week. Yeah, and you chose... Twisted Sisters. Twisted Sisters. Classic oh, album. Hang on, sorry, just to yeah, throw it back to Milan. I, I did listen to that cover. I've heard a lot of punk covers of pop songs, and I've even heard punk or ska versions of Disney songs. But this one was actually really well done, I thought, because <laughs> a lot of them come across as gimmicky. And um, like me first and the Gimme Gimmies, I love them, but Gimme Gimme sounds sort of like Gimme Gimmick. They're doing it as a gimmicky thing, but um, just like when Floor Jansen did Let It Go, this sounded like it belonged, is what I'm saying. So I thought that was um, pretty impressive. What did you think, Evan? Yeah, no, yeah. Uh, yeah, of course, it's excellent. Uh, yeah. I was, I was going to say, it, it's, a, it's a common theme for metal bands to, uh, you know, pick something unusual, speed it up and, and chuck some distortion on it. You know, yeah. and I'm still waiting for someone to do Hotel California. Um, how proud were you to hear that, though, David? It was a very pleasant surprise, and it was certainly it gave me rock and roll bona fides, which was good. You now have street cred with the chiropractic set. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, let's... Adam Lambert on Cinderella gives me a little bit of cred. Yes, I was well, I was lucky enough to see um, Queen right before COVID dropped, and Adam Lambert a Queen. Oh my God, can he sing? What, oh, what a legend. Anyway. Queen is, is my kind of rock and roll. Yeah. 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 I'm with Queen today. Oh, you can't see it. It usually <laughs> says I'm with stupid, but today it says I'm, I'm with, with Queen. Queen. Yep. Because I figured we're doing Cinderella. So. Right. But yes. Anyways, Twisted Sister. We are back in the 80s again. We are. Uh, we've spent a lot of time in the 80s lately and we're going to. That's absolutely fine. I think we'll move on. Um, I used to think that the 90s was the best period for music in general you know all the best songs are in the 90s i was wrong it's the 80s you know ev everything was everything was made in the 80s you know the the uh, the emergence of rap the emergence of may <laughs> you were made in the 80s all right yeah but we're back in the 80s it's 1994 quiet riot was a good 12 months earlier breaking out getting into the mainstream um yep. and yeah twisted sister were plugging along i think they were formed in about 1976 so they've mm -hmm. been plugging along for about eight, nine years, trying to get a record label everywhere, getting rejected everywhere. Um, they were stuck in the pubs. Yeah, they decided to, can't remember the reason, but they decided to move to Britain and, and have a crack over there. The weather. <laughs> um, and they, they got picked up by this little known um, label in Britain called Secret Records, um, where they recorded their first two albums, which were doing okay. And there was some sales and they were, you know, earning a bit of money and uh, they were not well liked at all. There's this brilliant footage. They were playing a festival in Britain um, in front of like 30,000 people. And I've never seen so much stuff thrown on stage in wow. that gig. They were, uh, you know, and it was tomatoes, lettuce, cucumbers, the drummers state, the drummers like sitting there going, I, I could have made a salad with what ended up on stage. No, they were not going down well at all. Oh, okay. 
And then Secret Records folded. I was just going to ask, was that the inspiration for We're Not Going to Take It? Yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> Possibly, yeah. Possibly, yeah. Well, the, the story goes that the um, the ro- after the show, one of the roadies actually found some feces on stage. Ooh. And they were wondering, uh, Dee Snyder tells the story, you know, 20 years later, he's laughing about it going, you know, how angry do you have to be to mm. drop trow in front of 30,000 people <laughs> and have it end wow. up on stage? But yeah, they ended up back in America. Um, they got picked up, I think, by Atlantic at some point and recorded this album, which, of course, just went mental. Um, they sold about three million albums, which was pretty damn good for 84. But it was the music videos that really sent them into the mainstream. Um, Dee Snider had this vision of, you know, cartoony violence. They are sort of credited as one of the first music videos that tell a story in the video rather than just driving around in cars or, you know, playing on stage or just videoing themselves although i would argue it was alice cooper anyway beside the point the problem was with these these videos mtv picked them up you know they get huge airplay they're you know biggest band of the world and uh the problem with the, the cartoony type story driven music videos they started appealing to the younger audience and they were having uh you know middle school and elementary school children turn up to their shows with their parents and then again, there's this classic story of they're playing this show and this, this mother has brought her nine-year-old to this show and there was a heckler up the front and Dee Snyder has said, hey, buddy, why don't you suck my dick? The parent has just lost her shit and called the police. He's ended up getting arrested after the show for, you know, indecent public conduct, or lewd behavior, something like that, um, which ended up being a, like a $75 fine, you know, with a bit of a slap on the wrist, but it did get the retention of the uh the parents groups mm-hmm. so next thing you know you're um a little bit down the road you're you're testifying in congress in front of Deborah gore uh you know <laughs> for the uh the explicit lyrics stickers going on the albums you know they were part of that um and there is this yeah classic exchange between d snyder and and Tipper gore where they're asking what i think it's the final song on the on the album uh smf and they're like what does F- smf stand for he goes, oh, well, it stands for sick motherfuckers. Oh. <laughs> and she goes, well, that's not very Christian. And he's going, well, I don't see what profanity has to do with Christianity. No. <laughs> Christians swear. They became the embodiment of sort of everything that was wrong with rock and roll and heavy metal and became a bit of a target. Yeah. So they did. They sort of earned their place in music history through that. Of course, they eventually lost. And, you know, we still got stickers on albums. Yeah. Well, I've written a <laughs> review. Would we like to hear it? Why not? Yeah. I think that's why we're here. Let's see if they are still a target. Mm. When I first saw the cover, I felt right at home after watching so much Drag Race. So when I was ready, I steadied and goed to Spotify. And whilst the first song had interesting drumming and raspy vocals free of sleeves, the second track got me excited. A cover of The Who's Tommy? We're Not Gonna Take It is a classic finale. So I don't know why it's so early on this show. Hang on, this isn't Tommy. This is yet another cover that isn't a cover. Doth a song by any other name sound so sweet? No, I'm not going to take this. I never did and never will. Three stars. But wait, there's more. No, I'm still better. (laughs) That's my review. Ouch. Okay, no, I'm I'm being mean. Um, Reverse psychology is real, though, with the first song, Stay Hungry, and the title... Because all I wanted to do was eat. 
Burning Hell was dark and with an almost punkish flavor. I, it was actually pretty good, but it's okay because I know I'm going to burn in hell. I've already bought some marshmallows. Horror Terrier was also dark. And whilst long, it was like the current season of American Horror Story double feature. And the price was too slow for me. And the defeatist attitude made me want to skip it. Oh, nasty. So, um, and I thought SMF meant sexy motherfucker and the joke was oh they wrote a song about me <laughs> and now that's well i guess it still is what was it yeah. oh sick motherfucker sick no that's motherfucker. not if it was stupid yeah then me yeah. pardon our language david you are a broadway and hollywood legend <laughs> oh, i'm sorry that's just what it stands for um the fan club is actually you know the twisted sister smfs oh are they yeah yeah no yeah. that so... doesn't surprise me at all Mariah Carey's fans are lambs. It's funny you should mention horror terrier. Yeah, I quite like that. That, that was very theatrical. Like that was a... He, he did go, uh, Dee Snyder did go and make uh, a horror film. Oh, I should have done my research. Yeah, um, in that song, Captain Howdy, Stay Away From Captain Howdy, he turned that into a character that he played himself. Oh, okay, um, yeah, cool. So yes, it is, uh, you know, it did end up being a horror film sort of fleshed out from just that one song. Yeah, why, why don't horror film uh, not horror film why don't metal musicians ever make a comedy film or a family film why is it no it's a horror rob zombie and rob zombie with um halloween oh, and house, house of house a thousand, thousand corpses and it's never you know beaches <laughs> <laughs> they probably have to change their makeup yeah that's true Although the 80s, the big hair. You know, you know. If, if you put Marilyn Manson on a beach, I think he'd end up pretty red. <laughs> yeah, probably. Although um, he's a, a pariah at the moment. I think his face is pretty red. Mm. Or his wrists from the handcuffs. Anyways. Um, yeah, okay. So, David, what did you think of this? Well, it, it's a fairly classic album. Um, yep. We're Not Gonna Take It was huge. And I mm. rather love the song. Burn in Hell was pretty good. Uh, mm-hmm. And the the opening number I like too. Opening number, I guess I'm still talking about it in theatrical terms, but I like "Stay Hungry." Fine. Yeah, every then, week I do that. <laughs> it was kind of middling after that. Not my favorite album. Yeah, uh, yeah. Well, <laughs> that's that's the thing. I'm kind of um, not really fun to admit that. I, but in listening it back, I was even sitting here going, "This isn't really a great album. Not not really." Really. Um, the... You know what I think is not great? Sorry to cut in there. It's the studio, uh, not studio, stadium anthems. The We're Not Gonna Take It, which again, I'm still hearing the bloody, the Who's Tommy, uh, and I Wanna Rock, which is has been overdone in so many movies where anyone is walking up to a bloody monster truck rally or they're putting on sunglasses and a leather jacket, you're going to hear that bloody song. <laughs> but the dark songs that they had on there that I pointed out those were actually decent songs because they haven't been done to death so much they didn't sound like a million other bands they sounded like a band who was in their third album and maybe playing around with their sound a little bit moving away from that uh, stadium anthem sound that's in my opinion as a complete troglodyte who has no idea what I'm talking about yeah yeah see I'm a big fan of um Track seven, uh, Don't Let Me Down, you know, it wasn't a single. It's a, that's a great song. I was going to defend them for the reason we're not going to take it as overdone is because it's good. <laughs> well, yeah, I, I'm, look, I'm such a huge Tommy obsessive. I really am. Um, so 
and it's funny because doing the Tommy episode with Michael Cerverus and Lara, who was co-hosting with me at the time, she mentioned the the Twister Sister song. And so I had that going through my head when I was trying to talk about the Who's Tommy. Now talking about Twisted Sister, all I have going through my head is the Who's Buddy Tommy version. So I think my problem is earworms for me when I don't know the lyrics enough to know the whole song. When I get just two or three lines stuck in my head, that's when I need a screwdriver to stab myself in the bloody ear with it. But when I do know a full song, then I'm able to finish the song out. No one's around. I can perform it in my kitchen by myself. Yeah, so songs like I Want to Rock or We're Not Going to Take It, I don't know well enough but I do know their catchy choruses and I think that's why they drive me nuts because I don't know any further. It's my ignorance. It's my, it's me. It's not them. So that, that's where it amazes me. Uh, again, I was listening to it, uh, listening back to it and it's been, you know, probably 30 years since I've sat, listened to the whole album in again. And it's amazing how well memory still works. And like, you know, every word is still there. I could just sing along to the whole thing not missing a beat you know it's all still up there somewhere um but yeah i was um again listening back to it i was a little disappointed with the quality of the recording i found it was quite muddy um you know some of the songs sound a little underwater and turns out in 2004 they got back together and re-recorded the entire album um so you know 20 year anniversary and they, the problem is they didn't change anything. It sounds exactly the same. There's like one lead break that's different and the drummer is exceptionally better than he was. And he's going a little bit mental, but the recording still sounds very similar. Like I wanted a bit more clarity. It just, yeah, it needed to be done. I don't know, in a better studio with a better producer or something. It, it it's just wasn't as clear as I would have liked it anyway. Yeah. Did you notice this, David? Because you're more of an expert than us uh, civilians. No, I didn't. <laughs> no, you didn't. Yeah, so I noticed it in Iggy Pop's Raw Power, which we covered with Tonya Pinkins. Yeah, I, I noticed it in that the recording was so grainy, it irritated me because the, the music didn't sound good for what should be like one of my favourite genres. And especially Iggy Pop, who has such a reputation uh, reputation behind him. So, no, I didn't notice it myself. Sorry. Maybe it's my good sound system. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. Maybe. You, you never know. But, yeah, it's, I mean, sometimes you do. Just You just come across these albums where you go, oh, I just wish that was recorded better with better quality microphones. And I don't know what, what the problem is there, but they yeah. just come out muddy. Sometimes yes. you come across podcasts like that too, Evan. Welcome to Thrash and Treasure. Sometimes it's lost in the mix. It's really hard to have clean, really clear mixes. It takes a lot of time and work. Who was I reading about? I think I was, when I was reading about the police the other day, they, was it the police recorded in a stairwell, I think, to, to get natural reverb and, and sound? Led Zeppelin used to do it with their drums. They would record in a stairwell. No, I wasn't reading about Led Zeppelin recently, but I was reading about the police. Uh, anyways, I think we've unraveled the Twister Sister. So well, well, I loved listening back to it again. You did? Even though it was mediocre, adequate at best? Yeah, well, you know, I think you remember it better than it was. It's one of those. Yeah. Um, but no, I, I, was still, I was still headbanging around the bakery. Loving it. Yeah, uh, cool. Yeah. And were you headbanging around, David? 
Oh, my head doesn't bang around that much, but it was, it was very much a time capsule. And yeah. it was fun to think about the 80s. I, yeah. I like the 80s. Yeah. Yeah. You get these weird snapshots. Like I remember, you know, I would have been, I think I was eight years old when this came out. You know, just I clearly remember jumping on the trampoline, singing, we're not going to take it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> little, little snippets come back. Mate, I'm 36 years old and I still jump on the trampoline and scream, I'm not going to take it. Anyways, we're going to take it to an ad break and we'll be back in a moment with David Zippel. Coming this summer, winter, spring or fall, the first ever musical theatre sitcom where you go behind the scenes of the latest West End show, The Fosse Forest Ballet. Where's the important stuff? Aha! A thousand pound a week ensemble rate. Ah, that's what Mamma Mia likes. Starring Philip Joel and a West End cast featuring Carrie Alice, Darren Day, Louise Demon, and Oliver Savile, and more. It all started in 1987 when I was a jobbing actress working in a diner. Yeah, it's just I, I had a really bad experience when I was touring Australia with a wombat. Darling, how long have I been mentoring you? Three months? Two years. So her name is Henrietta. The horse. Yes. I've managed to secure you an audition for the biggest, most innovative, and the latest show to be going into the West End. Joseph and his Technicolor Dreamcoat. Think more along the lines of Pant. Frozen. Watch this episode for the price of a coffee. Simply go to www.thefussyforestbelly.com. Any and all profits go back to theater charities, acting for others, and the theater's trust. You'll laugh, you'll cry, and you'll see a grown man in sparkly tights. Tight nights. Nice tights. We're back with Fresh and Treasure. I'm Aaron, that's Evan, and we're joined by legendary Broadway lyricist David Zippel. What the hell? Goodness gracious me. And it is really a true honour to have you on this show. And um, I've, I'm going to get the hard question out of the way now. Um, well, it's not the hard question, but it's, it's the, I guess, the sentimental question for me. So I hope I've got tissues nearby. Now, for those Disney fans out there, there are two documentaries to check out. Waking Sleeping Beauty and Howard. They're both on Disney+. Plus. Get the tissues, they will both make you cry, but they are, uh, they very much highlight the Disney Renaissance period, of which, David, you were a part of. You stepped in with um, Hercules and Mulan. Now, Howard Ashwin, he was a real champion of bringing the Broadway musical into the animated film. So when you stepped into this, uh, how, how was that for you, taking that torch? Um, yeah, I knew <laughs> and liked him very much and, of course, admired him enormously. Um, Alan and I uh, wrote together probably from the, well, from the early 80s and um, had written some views in uh, New York. So, uh, of course, I, I knew Howard through Alan and um, <laughs> it was just tragic and, and heartbreaking to, to lose yeah. him So in his life and in, in the AIDS crisis. So I was honored when Alan asked me if I would do Hercules. Um, of course, musical theater was definitely uh, the world that led me to writing. And writing animated films is pretty much the same process 
the difference is instead of having at most 20 musicians, probably like 10 now, um, you get a hundred musicians when you do, when you do uh, an animated film. As I say, I was maybe 11, 10, 11 when Hercules came out. And whilst that was big and spectacular, the songs were what I loved about that because they were so funky. They really were. Yeah, that's that's really was my takeaway. That and the abs. But anyways, from one fantasy to another. Yeah, well, actually, I was I was going to say my um, uh, again, you know, finding out that you have a hand in in all these things, I had no idea about. Um, my stepdaughter, um, is quite a decent singer and and was doing a little bit of musical theater. You know, I would come home from work and and Hercules would be on, and then I'd come home from work again and Hercules is on again. And I'm like, you know, you know, after four or five times, I'm like, really? How can you just watch the same movie over and over and over? Just, you know, it's just one of her favorite films, you know, and sits there singing along. So, yeah, to, to find out that, you know, they're your songs. It's, yeah, it's, it's, it's a, a discovery. About a year and a half ago, or just before COVID, Alan and I had the opportunity to revisit the show and the score uh, because yeah. we did a stage version in Central Park. Yeah, for the Delacorte. Indeed. And it went really well. And so now we're working on, on do that was done as part of a group called um, uh, Public Works. It was more of a, with, I think, 250 onstage people. So it was kind of an extravaganza. So we, and it went well. So we're taking that version and adapting it for a a more traditional um, musical theater production with 20 to 25 people instead of 250 people. So reducing it uh, to 10% and uh, finishing it right now. So we're, we're really enjoying working on it again and writing new songs for those characters. It's been fun. Yeah, there wasn't enough. There wasn't enough. As I say, that, that was my takeaway was the music, which was across the board for that, that era of Disney um, films from The Little Mermaid onwards, which, as I say, that Howard. Look, anyone go out and watch the documentaries Howard and... Uh, waking sleeping beauty and see the impact that people like david and alan menken and stephen schwartz and even elton john and tim rice and of course howard ashman had on all of our bloody childhoods for crying out loud these are the songs that we we hum all the time but anyways from one fantasy to another we'll talk about cinderella um we're going to move on to we're going to move on to cinderella um which is uh uh, a, a new musical, which is it's nice to see some new material, um, which is finally, I, it's, it's, is it up and running now? Are you doing shows? Has it opened? It is yet? indeed. It is it indeed. indeed. Yeah. Uh, Can you relax your, your shoulders now that it's finally like sit down and go, thank goodness, because obviously it was a uh, touch and go there. Well, COVID has been the sort of Damocles that's been hanging over all of show business. And mm-hmm. Certainly all of live theater. Putting the show together was a joyful experience, but, and usually with a new show, there's all kinds of anxiety about, is this going to work and how are we going to fix it? And do we cut this song and write a new song for that section? This show had none of the drama like that. From the first preview, it went so well, but COVID provided all of the anxiety that was missing from the usual process of Mm -hmm. We were supposed to open to full houses and then the government changed the rules. And then uh, Andrew decided that he was going to get arrested and open with a full house anyway, until he found out that not only would all of us be in chains, most likely, but that everyone (laughs) in the audience would have been fined, I think, um, the equivalent of 750. Opened with socially distanced audiences for a month, losing money so that we could finally open with a full house 
And the weekend before we were the opening night, one of our actors got COVID. So we were going to have to shut down. So Andrew just shut us down completely, which made economic sense. And a month yeah. later, we opened finally at last. And thank God. And I couldn't be happier, although I'm 7,000 miles away. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a shame. But um, yeah, obviously, we've had... Um... I wrote actually my own version of Cinderella. We've just had the the recent film and all that. Uh, how many people gave you sass when you said I'm working on Cinderella? Or <laughs> did no one? Oh, for writing Cinderella, you mean? Or a, a new version of it? Did anyone? And did you want to smack them for it? Well, it's always good to want to smack people, but no, I I. <laughs> it, was, it was when Andrew called me. I thought, what a good idea. I didn't realize there were going to be quite as many Cinderellas at the same time. Yeah. <laughs> but I had I started a campaign to get Andrew to call the show not Cinderella. And I thought Andrew you know, Andrew Lloyd Webber's Not Cinderella was a great title. And I think I had a few people who felt the same way, but Andrew wanted to call it Cinderella because I just thought we should right from the get-go let our audiences know that we're not your grandmother's or grandfather's Cinderella. Um, yeah. But uh nope, we're Cinderella. And uh, I think we're a good one, though. I'm very proud of it. Yep. Now, if you had, had called it Andrew Lloyd Webber's not Cinderella with the apostrophe S, it would have been like he was saying that he's not Cinderella. <laughs> that might have been sending the uh, wrong message there. Uh, but anyways, so Evan, what did you yeah. think? And Yeah, so um, oh, my, my original thought, I, I, it's quite long uh, just to listen to. Um, because I, I initially looked at the track list and went, oh, my God, how many songs are there? Oh, they're all quite short. All right, this shouldn't take too long. Yeah, it is. It, I'm not sure what the actual runtime ends up as. It's, it's quite a long um, album. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, my, I listened through it all the way through. And, honestly, my, my first thought was, you worked Schiffer Robe into a song. <laughs> uh, well, and in answer, to, just to respond to your... Um compose musicals so rather than having a lot of dialogue and and which would normally make a musical sound an album uh, a little bit shorter we sang a lot of the dialogue as well so it, that's what i think accounts for the length of it yeah yeah uh, yeah that was my, uh, uh i had a question early, uh, later on was was there is there any dialogue at all in the show because you know, this is the first musical I've had to listen to where the entire story start to finish is being told in music. Um, and, and some musicals have come close to that where you can, you know, get the gist of this, the story. Um, and, and sometimes, you know, the dialogue can end up inconsequential to the songs. Uh, but the, in this, the entire story is in the music and it, it doesn't seem to leave any questions uh, about the story other than I was wondering, was it Cinderella who vandalised the statue? It was indeed. And uh, there's a lot of visual um, elegance to the show that, you, that the album doesn't really give you a sense of. Uh, also, it's, the show has changed a little bit. The album was recorded oh. dur during lockdown. Yeah. And the significant amount of it changed between what's recorded and what we actually have on the stage. In fact, that huge sequence that Adam Lambert does, the uh, vanquishing of the three-headed sea witch isn't even in the show anymore. Um, but I still think you get a good sense of the tone of our show from the, from the album. Funny. I was listening to it again this morning and, and listening to that 
uh, that song of Prince Charming telling where he's been, I was it did cross my mind. Like this song isn't really necessary. That crossed my mind while while we were writing it, uh, and I thought <laughs> I don't think this is going to make it to the end. But everyone was very excited about the concept, and um, I figured, well, let's write it and we'll see. And I'm really glad we did just because Adam Lambert recorded it and he did such a great job and he had what a great sense of humor he has. He, he just mm. captures the fun of it all. But and there is dialogue. Emerald Fennell, uh, I don't know if you know Emerald, she um, won an Oscar this year for Promising Young Woman. Yep, uh, she's quite a remarkable woman. Uh, I met her when she was 33. She had this is January of 2000, uh, 2019. She didn't have any children. She hadn't won an Oscar, directed a movie, hadn't written a Broadway show or a, or a West End show, um, but had written the first season of Killing Eve and had recorded as playing the, the role of Camilla in uh, The Crown. I don't know if you've watched The Crown, but she plays Camilla on that series. And that hadn't been aired yet. Uh, during the two years of COVID and the time it took us to write the show. She was nominated for three Oscars and three Golden Globes, won the Oscar for Best Screenplay, was nominated for an Emmy for Killing Eve, was nominated for an Emmy for Playing Camilla, and wrote our show and had two children. So I, I have to hand it to her. She's pretty remarkable. Yeah, no, I, I have seen uh, Promising Young Woman. Uh, saw the trailer you know, whenever it was and, and went, oh, that looks awesome. And yeah, my, me and my wife did sit down and watch it and, and thoroughly enjoyed that. It's, it's fun. So yeah, I do know, I do have some, do know of some of her work. There's some dialogue from Emerald and most of it is sung, but it's crackling funny and good dialogue as well. So yeah, I was really impressed with just how well the story progresses purely through music. You can just listen to this album start to finish and, and get the entire story um, you kept the humor going without as far as something like Shrek, which is, you know, just completely over the top silly. The narrative really barrels along with every verse and the character development and plot is entirely told in the lyrics, which is, you know, it is quite an achievement. It must be, it must be nice to finally see it all done and being performed and be able to sit back and, you know, enjoy the show. Unfortunately, you're on the other, the other side of the world. It was very satisfying to see it up on its feet and the designs are so beautiful. It is so exceptionally gorgeous and and clever the the, the set our, our set costume designer mm. is genius and there's some coup de théâtre some really cool things that happen i won't give any spoilers but does that wall move yeah yeah we're obsessed about the backdrop yes we are sorry that's that wall i immediately saw it and went you know what is that made of you know how much does it weigh does it move does it ripple <laughs> yeah that's i have so many questions <laughs> yeah we were just fascinated with that backdrop it, it is so gorgeous and and so well designed yeah and yeah I, I immediately sort of went what is that made of and and you know was there plans to have it uh you know ripple or at least have it in like two pieces in slats and you could you know, move it up and down, cast light across it. There's so much you could do with it. Yeah. It takes light beautifully, but, and our lighting designer is aptly named Bruno Poet. Mm -hmm. But there's yeah. some more tricks that it, that the, the set does and the theater does that kind of are, is pretty mind blowing. I think people are gasping when it happens. So um, I'll, nice. I'll leave it at that. Oh, yes. No, no yeah. spoilers. Please open it in Melbourne when you bring it to Australia, not Sydney. I've never had a show in, in Australia. I almost, City of Angels almost happened and then didn't. And then the, I was going to direct a version of The Goodbye Girl. And I flew, yep. I flew over 
and we cast it and then the producer went bankrupt and it never happened so uh oh, shit. i know i was very disappointed so oh, now evan did you get through your review no i'm about halfway um oh okay right. yeah i'll let you continue yep. i really need to top up my coffee so i'm i'm letting I'll you hurry up take out the baton because my stress levels right now are <laughs> through the roof i know you've so Goodness been he, look I'm, I'm just gonna speak up for aaron here he's been so looking forward to speaking to you david and i have and, and his mind's <laughs> just exploding because nothing's going right all my idols on this show and and this is the first time i've looked like a friggin idiot so <laughs> yeah. i'm so sorry david okay Oh, country. Oh, oh, thank you. I, I really do appreciate that. I know you're all just people. I've, I've learned that. But still, I'm producer of this show. So it's, it is on my shoulders. Anyways, Evan, continue. Yeah. I'm shutting up. You shut up. Um, anyway, yeah, the, um, just in, in listening to it and doing a bit of research, the cast itself just seems to be chock full of overachievers. Um, like Carrie Hope Fletcher herself, I think I counted about 15 or 16 different productions she's been involved in. And then four books all at the age of 28 on, on top of being just ridiculously talented. And then when you pack such a talented cast on top of, you know, Andrew Lloyd Webber's music topped off with your lyrics, I really don't see how the thing can fail. Um, and there are quite a few moments listening to it where I do stop and think, Holy crap, who was that singing? You know, they, there's some big notes some big numbers that are really impressive, but generally with a lot of musicals I've listened to uh, through the show, um, they generally sound very dated or, you know, they just happen to be 50 years old and, you know, you can hear it in the music. Um, so being a new production with new music certainly wins me over most of the way just to begin with. Um, I've mentioned before um, that, you know, orchestras today do play differently than they did 50 years ago. You know, they have different influences. The music musicians in the orchestra grew up listening to different music and you can hear it in the final product. Um, I, I hear you did sneak in a little bit of electric guitar in there, but even mm. then it's used to further the mood of the song and for dramatic effect, not just to make it sound modern day, <laughs> which would make me think, you know, you've got Andrew sitting there going, yeah, yeah, we'll, we'll bust out the distortion pedal on this one, you know? Huh. And I do love again, that a musical has made a baker, the desired character. So you get points for that. Uh, I love, you know, Sunday, I love Sunday in the park with George. Uh, you know, where the baker is the, the desirable mate, I suppose you might say. Into the Woods as well. Is there? I haven't heard that one yet. Oh, that baker is my favorite baker in all of um, all of musical theater. Oh, brilliant. Yeah, because you can't eat a painting, you know. Indeed. And Joanna Gleason, who you've had on your show, was mm -hmm. the baker's wife. Right. That's what she won her Tony Award for. That was before you took over, Evan. Oh, brilliant. Well, it seems to be a common theme. Someone needs to do Baker the Musical. They have called The Baker's Wife that the Patti LuPone starred in, that Stephen Schwartz, who wrote Wicked, wrote. And uh, in fact, I, I commend you to listen to a song that he wrote called Where is the Warmth about the Baker? It's a beautiful song where she chooses between her hot stallion of a boyfriend that she runs away from and her very reliable, uh, lovable baker. Okay. Standout songs. Um, I Know I Have a Heart just blew me away you know, because you broke it. That's, that's a really a standout song. I, and I hope for a change that there can be a, a breakthrough song from a musical that makes it into the mainstream top 40. It's about time some of these songs, you know, got recognized from the wider community again, you know, back in the day when, you know, a lot of the songs from musicals ended up 
you know, on the radio. I, I, it's, it's a shame that doesn't happen anymore because it, it certainly deserves to. Thank you. Yeah, and Act, uh, Act One ends, oh, yeah, Beauty is a Price is another standout song. Um, and the banter between the, uh, the Godmother and Cinderella is, is just classic. Uh, you know, she's like, what? In the, and, you know, this short notice? You know, everyone else has been planning for weeks. The only intelligent question I might have is uh, when, when, when someone walks into audition room for a lead or a support, what is the number one thing you are looking for apart from their vocal skills? Well, definitely the ability to inhabit the character and their acting skills as well. And, and, and a star quality, basically. The, the, talent, the level of talent is so high. So many terrific people come to audition and it's easier and easier to choose a cast. But Carrie Hope Fletcher is just off the charts brilliant. And she did the reading for us that we did, the very first reading we did. And from that moment on, we realized that was our Cinderella. She was on fire. And she, one of the things that she's so good at is in addition to singing brilliantly, she's really funny and she can find the nuance and, and, and also touching. I mean, she, she's a really superb actress, or I guess actor we say now. And uh, it comes through spectacularly. Even on the record, you can hear her sense of humor and, and, um, and she, she's incredibly touching to as well. It's, it's a, really amazing performance i have to say yeah I'm a, I'm a fan of someone else now you know of uh yeah there's a you know another name i now have to research and that's lovely you'd scored adam lambert to play prince charming what was that like to work with somebody who has such, a male especially that has such a range of vocals was it tempting to test him a little bit here and there well we certainly put him through his paces with that song i mean it, it yep very demanding I was not at the session of, as a result okay. of yep. COVID and it was a little heartbreaking because I'm a huge fan mm -hmm. and I just think he's a spectacular singer and I was thrilled that he agreed to do this. And as I mentioned earlier, uh, the song isn't in the show anymore, but I'm so glad we wrote it just because we got Adam <laughs> Lambert to record it. It's That's it. I still listen yep. to it just to hear his vocal now and then. Yeah. Yeah. The other comment of, uh, you know, Andrew Lloyd Webber is, is still producing critically acclaimed work. Um, you know, in his first publicly performed musical was uh, Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat at the age of 20, which is over 50 years ago. Um, and Aaron is 36 and he can't even make pasta without ripping the skin off his foot with third degree burns. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> Thank you for reminding everyone what a numpty I really am. Now, okay, I've got a, a fun question. Who is someone from before 1900 whom you would take to the ball? Before 1900? Yes, we've got to make it difficult. Definitely Oscar Wilde, no question. Awesome. Who would yours be, Evan? Before 1900? Yep. Oh, Jesus Christ. Yeah, that's a good answer. <laughs> that's one, that's, I had that question written purely for someone to say, Jesus Christ, so I could throw in that punchline. Thank you for falling for it again. Uh, anyways, I think we better throw to an ad break before we all turn into pumpkins. We'll be back in a moment with Fresh and Treasure. G'day listeners, Aaron here. While you're topping up your coffees, did you know that you can support our show and go on a fantastically scary adventure at the same time? Go to www 
thetonistontales.com forward slash bookstore to grab your copy of The Toniston Tales, a darkly funny Aussie trilogy about a young boy who rescues injured animals in his spare time and the roller coaster ride he's taken on by a literal fish out of water. Written by me, the village idiot of Thrash and Treasure, you'll come to love Toniston Turnbull and the dozens of wacky characters that he meets along the way. And here is a sneak peek. Crack, thud, the human trips over the uneven ground as the twanimal blows out the lantern. Watch your step, Kapoor says a little too late. Why did you put the light out? Bollycosh, an open flame near hay bales? And here I thought you were smart, sir. Toniston agrees with how silly he must have sounded. What are we doing out here? The boy asks as they blindly walk around the side of the house, where they're greeted by giant shadows rising up above them. Unable to properly see in the pitch-black darkness, Toniston presumes they are the three hay bales. He looks around. The plains are vast, and the spotlights out in the distance, now a purple colour, seem to be too far away to bring any real light to them. They do, however, look very pretty dancing on the rippling oceanic sky. Stand back, the silhouetted cub paw warns with his gruff but friendly voice, clearly able to see in the darkness better than the human who had constantly refused to eat his carrots. Grab your copy of The Toniston Tales from thetonistontales.com forward slash bookstore today. Hooroo! I've on record on this show saying it many, many times. His music is electrifying. It is exciting. And there is an open invitation for him to come on my show to talk about Evita, because I would be goodness gracious me. You think I'm a mess yeah. today, David? I'll be yeah. I'll be cool, calm and collected that day, because you know, I'd have to be. All right, you're listening to Thrash and Treasure. I'm Aaron. That's Evan, and we're joined by legendary Broadway lyricist David Zippel. Goodness gracious, uh, not just Broadway, but Hollywood as well, having done numerous projects, including the Veronica's Closet theme song, which um, <laughs> I'm going to say that I do remember when they changed that theme song and I was not happy. Well, thank you. I don't even know why they changed yeah. it. Yeah, but uh... and just to a pop song. I don't care. We had a catchy thing like the, the, the 80s and 90s, uh, maybe the 70s as well, with, you know, Greatest American Hero. Was that the 70s? Uh, yeah, late 70s. Yeah, there yeah. were theme songs that were tangible that you could sing along to at, at home. Well, not at home. You were at home watching TV. You know what I mean? Like, they stuck around. Yeah, so I don't, you don't know why they changed it. That was part of my question. <laughs> I have no idea. I think I think it had something to do with uh, Kirstie Alley wanting a new song, but... Uh... And as the star, Kirsty got whatever she wanted, but um, mm -hmm. I never quite understood why. And Michael Sclough, who I, was the composer with whom I wrote it, was still the musical director. So who knows? But um, there was never it was never explained to me. But I, I I think I got three seasons out of it, yep. which is not bad. And did she get more than four seasons, or was that? No, she didn't. No. That's when the tabloids sort of took over. Um, they were quite cruel to her. And I actually have a. I don't know if this will make it to air, um, <laughs> but I have a, a little insider knowledge of the Veronica's Closet set because there was, I think someone complained to her or something like that, or complained to the, the bosses and she came to set wearing a t-shirt that said, fuck me, I'm the boss. I don't think <laughs> that would go down well today in a post Me Too world, 
but yeah, so that I think that's what she was kind of like. She was ah. no fucks given, did what she wanted. You know, she was the boss and it was her show. So I guess, yeah, the, the, uh, the good theme was a casualty of that ego with all due respect to Kirsty Alley. She has blocked me on Twitter though, so she won't be hearing <laughs> this episode. Uh, but anyways, now looking back at this stunning career and progress, what is the one song that you are the most proud of? Wow, that's a tough one. Good. Um, you are on the torture chamber. I would say it's like choosing among your children, and I have a lot of children. Mm-hmm. I'll narrow it down to a few. I'm not going to answer your question exactly as asked. Then we can Hunger Games them. <laughs> You're Nothing Without Me at the end of the first act of City of Angels is something I'm particularly proud of because it, it ties together what Cy Coleman and Larry Gelbart, our book writer, and I were trying to accomplish. And, and it really was an exciting, thrilling end of the act. And, and when it came together for the first time, we were all kind of gasped because it exceeded our expectations. So that's one of them. Go the Distance because it was my first Oscar nomination and because it was an unexpected song to, to be, it was written very late in the score. Uh, we had written a song uh, for Megara, the female character, and called uh, I Can't Believe My Heart, which we loved. And we thought that was gonna be the hit. And as we watched the, sh- the, the test screening of the show with just the pencil drawings, we all felt that it was a little late in the score to have a ballad. So we removed that song, which meant, and, and wrote a song for the muses that was much more up-tempo. Mm-hmm. And result, we didn't have a song that we thought could be um, a pop hit. And so, which meant we removed another song we loved early in the show and um, replaced it with a, a to-be-written song. And so Go the Distance was written for that slot. And it had to be a potential pop hit and f- tell the story and have a, have a kind of Olympic sound to it, Olympian sound that, that could create the score for the whole movie. And it did. So it did go the distance. So that, that's another one. And uh, I particularly love Far Too Late in Cinderella, Far Too Late to Sing a Love Song, because mm. Melody, the first time I heard it, I just gasped and... Um, I think then all I ask of you, which is, a, a, I think it's Andrew's most beautiful song, maybe this is his second most beautiful melody. And so I was thrilled to have it in our show and to have a chance to write a lyric to it. So that's, that's my answer today. Those are my three favorite children. Please don't tell the others. <laughs> <laughs> oh no, definitely. And then I'm going to tell them that they're all adopted. <laughs> Anyways. Um, I always found it fascinating that Tate Donovan didn't sing his own song. No, no, disrespect at all to Roger Bart who is amazing but it's the Disney thing of like they had Matthew Broderick as Simba but he didn't do the singing and it's like he was on Broadway kids what are you doing like I've never understood why they do that it is funny um but well Roger Roger's a great singer and he's a comic genius and when we did uh Hercules in the Park he came back and played Hades it was so funny and great So I'm hoping that if we'll have a chance to work with him again when we do it on the stage. And he's currently in um, Back to the Future on the West End, which opened this week, I think. Yep. Yeah, and gather yeah, he's genius as usual in that. So I'm looking forward to getting back to London mm. to see. Yeah, okay. Well, speaking of uh, the 
different singers uh, with with Disney. If uh, you were hired to write a musical starring these four leads, what should we expect? We have Ricky Martin, Christina Aguilera, Belinda Carlisle, and yeah. Michael Bolton. I think. Oh well, that that sounds like Hercules to me. <laughs> and Hercules. I mean, and Ricky Martin. Wow, is that a great recording as well? Yeah. The, the song that we that we threw out of Hercules. Uh, called Shooting Star, which was the first song we wrote to replace with Go the Distance, was something we loved. And Roger Bart's performance of that particular song is just amazing. And that was done with a huge orchestra. And um, to my delight, um, when when the show opened in London, when the the movie opened, uh, Stephen Gately and Boyzone did a cover of it. Ah. And that was number two on the British charts. So um, it, it... didn't exactly go away quietly it just went away which is great but I, I was just wondering if if this uh being a new musical um with a with a strong female lead are you satisfied now Aaron that there is a musical with a strong female lead that's not just the wife of somebody or the love interest of somebody hang on hang on that's Alison Bechdel's test not mine <laughs> right my problem is with the musical comedy vehicle that we're not being given a mame. But have you noticed this? Like there's no real funny girl coming out anymore. That is a star vehicle for a comedic actress, a younger comedic actress. When we've just had Hello Dolly revived, we're about to have Funny Girl revived. Um, That's my issue. But have you noticed this, David? I have. I would say that Cinderella definitely meets that test because that is a bear of a role i mean she's on stage all the time she has a lot of singing to do in fact um to protect our cinderella she's doing seven performances a week and we have a terrific um alternate uh alternate cinderella who goes on once a week it's definitely that much of a bear to to do that show and uh like a vita a huge ask um so i think that is if, if that's what you're looking for cinderella is the character excellent Good, because that, that is what I'm looking for, that a, a star vehicle that is uh, the wildcat of the modern times. That's probably a really, <laughs> really poor example to use there. Um, you wouldn't get that joke, Evan. No, I've no idea Not what you're talking about. <laughs> no, it's way over your head. Evan, Lu- Lucille Ball was in Wildcat during its brief run. Yeah, very, very brief run. The, uh, the cat did not have nine lives. I've, I've often heard age, um, Aaron complain about, uh, you know, not enough, not enough leading ladies. That no, there, there are lots there of, the... there are lots of leading ladies. That's not my issue. It is with a specific genre because right. there are lots of dramas. There are lots of ensemble pieces. There are lots of coming of age stuff like fun home and, um, or even like depressing stuff like next to normal. This is certainly a lot of comedy in here. Yes, I know. I, I was um, highly surprised when I first heard Phallus uh, upon <laughs> yeah. my first listen. I'm like, oh, this is not the Cinderella we know and love. I can't wait to see it. I really can't. Uh, but anyways, in that songwriting process, is there any difference when writing, say, a smaller solo or a love duet compared to a big, bold, brassy group number? Not, not really. I mean, the group number or a or a um, big up-tempo number, uh, it really depends on, they, well, they both depend on the story. Mm-hmm. Uh, to try to tell the story in a, 
in an interesting and fresh way. I, I suppose to some degree, love songs are a little bit harder because uh, there are so many of them. And, and to try to say, I love you in a way that no one else has, that isn't, that it has a surprise to it. So again, I, I know I have a heart because you broke it. Uh, when that came along, I thought, oh, that's, that's pretty good. I haven't heard that before. So it's, it's really about finding fresh ways to tell a story. Yeah. Uh, now, we've had a, an ongoing question here. What has been your experience with standing ovations over time? Do you think audiences are maybe giving them out too freely today? Or uh, do you think that that change is good? Or what's, what's your sort of perspective on audience reactions in modern times? That's a very good question. I think they have evolved. In, in England, uh, I gather that's a more recent phenomenon. Uh, Americans have been effusive for decades. Um, it's only been in the last 20 years that English audiences have been quite as feel, felt free enough to, uh, to jump up to their feet. Um, I think it's a, if the actors are good and, and because I think the level of and the quality of performances has only gotten better, um, it makes complete sense to share that your enthusiasm for them and because they're in the room with you. Uh, the songwriters aren't always there, obviously. Um, I think standing ovations are great. If uh, I, I, I think audiences do them sincerely so if people stand, they're not going to stand up if they didn't have a good time. Yeah, because we've had lots of different perspectives here. So it's really good to, to get that song, you know, a songwriter or a composer's point of view from that because you aren't there all the time. So, well, every it's funny because I, I, I read every show report yeah. and there is one um, every day. And so far, we haven't had a performance with that wasn't a full standing ovation. Yeah. I'm not saying you don't deserve it. That's not at all the question. I promise that. Oh, I wasn't saying that you didn't. <laughs> not, not saying say that, that. You know, people aren't worthy of it at all. Just saying that there are different perspectives um, from that we've had from the guests. And that's why I keep bringing it up because it is such a fascinating thing. Uh, some people take it personally. Some people don't. You know, and I, I, th I find that fascinating as well. Yeah, you, you do get the odd performer will go, you know, what, what, are, they, what are they standing for? That was terrible. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Well, and I generally think performers are not necessarily the best judge of their own performance. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, usually you go to see a friend in a show and they always say you should have been here last night. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I think in, uh, it's certainly in the immediate future, you're going to see a lot more standing ovations because people are just so goddamn happy to be seeing shows again. Yeah. I think there is that. And people are so happy to be in a theater. A live theater. Yeah. Any times you've been starstruck? Sure. Um, well, initially, I was starstruck by Barbara Cook, who became my friend, and yeah. uh, and then I I was always a little bit starstruck. It's funny. Uh, I'm I have the the privilege of being Elaine Page's friend, who I and I think Elaine Page is a genius. And every now and then, I'll be doing something with her, and I'll think, Oh my God. My friend is Elaine Page. You're brilliant. Uh, it's uh, so when you have talented friends, um, it sort of comes and goes. Uh, certainly, Larry Gelbart and Cy Coleman, uh, my first Broadway collaborators, were heroes of mine years before I was 25 years younger than they. And so uh, I 
was all, it was a pinch me situation for months until I finally realized that I just had to suck it up and, and act like they're like it was no big deal, yeah. but it was always a big deal. Yeah. Okay. What about in the past, say 10 years or so? Hmm. Well, let's see. Well, I, I, Andrew is a pretty big star, but by the time, but in the last 10 years, we, we've already written together and had it written together a number of times. So um, I don't need sunglasses to be in the room with him. <laughs> um, trying to think uh, who I've met. Joan Collins thrilled me. I She's pretty amazing. Wow. <laughs> For me, it was Barbara Eden. Oh, Barbara Eden's amazing. She was. She was so tiny. So small. Was she in Australia? Yeah, it was at a convention. Um, Okay, now, so what's one piece of advice that you've been given early in your career that has since been proven wrong? Oh, that's a very interesting question. Um, take Fountain. Now, what you may ask is take Fountain. Yes. Um, that was this advice, and it's been attributed to um, Estelle Getty uh, from the Golden Girls okay. and Joan Crawford. Yep. And Betty Davis as well. Uh, there's a street in Los Angeles called Fountain Avenue. Okay, yeah. And the advice was, what, what, is, what is an advice I could give to someone starting their career in the, in the movie industry? And the advice was take Fountain because it supposedly streams traffic along a little faster and saves you time. Uh, that's really not true anymore. It's, <laughs> it's still bad traffic. Everyone's taking <laughs> Fountain, in other words. Exactly. Yep. Now, uh, Disney called tomorrow and offer you your dream animated film and a collaboration with somebody whom you haven't collaborated with before. Oh, what story, what classic story are you doing and who are you collaborating with? Well, I'm writing with Elton John for sure, because I've always wanted to write with Elton John. Uh, the story, let's see. Um, well, Disney has a, had a history. I'm not sure if they're doing it as much of sending you to the places you write about. Yeah, no, they do that. Yeah, they're still doing it. Yeah. I always thought I wanted to do something about a little girl who lived at the Four Seasons in Hawaii, but um, <laughs> Moana has been done. Yes. So Lynn Manuel got the Hawaiian vacation. So um, <laughs> I think uh, a story, Sex in the City, the animated musical. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> um, anyways, I got... Well, one last question myself. So I don't know if Evan has any, but what's the one question that interviewers keep asking you that you wish would be put to rest for good? Well, the, the, the most asked question is always, which comes first, the music or the lyrics? Mm. Not sure that I need that one to be put to rest. Yeah. How about what's Andrew Le Lloyd Webber really like? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and you know what? He's a lot of fun. Yeah. Uh, in fairness, I've been uh, able to write with a fair number of iconic writers. Yeah, um, you have. When you look at Marvin Hamlish and Cy Coleman and Andrew Lloyd Webber and Alan Minkin, I mean, those guys are humongous names in, in music, much, much, much bigger than mine. So uh, I can understand people wanting to know what it's like. It's not an unreasonable yeah. thing to ask. I, I actually uh, I, I saw an interview with Andrew Lloyd Webber recently and someone asked him a really interesting question, which was, uh, who would you have loved to have sung one of your songs? That's a great question. Mm. What, what was his answer? Elvis. Ah, what a great answer. And then, and then he finished with, actually, Elvis did sing one of his songs. Uh, uh -huh. Oh, wow. 
I can't remember what it was off the top of my head. I'd have to, I'd have to go look it up. I have an easy answer to that. And that's Barbara Streisand. Um, Cause I think she's amazing. And uh, uh, I've always wanted her to sing one of my songs and I've written a lot of parodies that she has sung over the years, sometimes for benefit, sometimes in her concerts, but she's never really sung a song that I've written. That was just a song. It's always been a, a special parody. So if you speak to her when she comes on your show, please ask her to sing one of my songs. David, as much as I can get legends on this show, I've admitted to have never seen a Barbara Streisand movie in my life. I'm a 36-year-old gay man who's done theater for 27 years, and I've never seen a Barbara movie. She's not coming on this show. Well, I can I encourage you to watch What's Up, Doc, because it is, is one of the funniest movies I've ever seen in my life. Write me when, when you've seen it and let me know if you felt the same way. It is really screamingly funny. So now, this is, this is the uh, beauty of this show that I could have gone my whole life. And weeks ago, I, I said, I'm going to go my whole life without watching a, a Barbara Streisand movie. And then one of my heroes comes on the show and says, you've got to, listen, uh, you've got to watch this movie and then write to me afterwards. So how do I say no to that, really? <laughs> I, I would be the, the biggest twit out there if I said, nah, I think I'll be fine. No, that's not for me. Of course I will. Not a particularly great distinction to have lived your life without having watched one. I had a friend who had never watched I Love Lucy. In her. Now, see, that's, yeah, that's not a... And I told her, you know, I watch this episode. And while I don't know that she became a Lucy freak, she did watch a lot of I Love Lucy in her lifetime. Yeah. On a side note, I've never watched Titanic. Oh. Oh, you can live a really uh, fulfilled life without having watched Titanic. I have a deal with my wife. She's got a list of movies that I have to watch and I have a list of movies that she needs to watch. Yeah. And, you know, then we swap. That's cool. I'm yeah. still up on, I'm still on the hook for Titanic. I made her watch Fight Club. That's it's a podcast in that, Evan. Yeah. I think yeah. there is. <laughs> yeah. Yes, no, it's been an absolute honor. Just before you go, where can people find you on the social medias? Well, I've really enjoyed talking to you guys. This has been a lot. Oh, I'm uh, the only social media I do is Twitter. Thankfully. Yep. At David Zippel, I think. Is that what it is? I think it is. Yes. At David Zippel on Twitter. So you can find me there. Yep. Uh, follow me. It would be fun to see the numbers go up. <laughs> yes, no, definitely. Like I, I sometimes I, I see like TikTokers have a million followers. I'm like, what? There are so many artists out there that deserve that. Anyways, um, no, it's been an absolute honor. Thank you so much. And for yep. listeners out there, if you're in London or in the UK or in Europe, go over and see Cinderella on the West End. Yeah, th thank you so much for you know sitting there sitting down with two idiots from the other side of the world. Um, congratulations on on everything you've done. Cinderella is is a going to be amazing. Um, yes, you should be very proud. Thank you. I really enjoyed it. Take care. I've enjoyed your uh, other podcasts. Uh, you know, listening to Patty Murren and Joanna Gleason and to the gentleman from the, the Muppets, which you just sent me. So yeah. thank you again. No, thank you for okay. listening. And, and please keep listening because we're bringing on some amazing guests coming out. So, yeah. Oh, Hadley. I will definitely watch Hadley. For everyone at home, you take care and we shall see you next time. Who wrote? Awesome. Thank you, guys. Like Quicksand!